Don't you love that? Isn't that awesome? Hey, I don't ask you a lot of personal favors. <laughs> Give, serve, sacrifice your life, those kinds of things. But not a lot, but I have one I want to ask you. Now, I, as you know, next weekend's the big weekend. It's the Super Bowl of the Christian faith. It's Easter. But before we get there, it's Good Friday, okay? And we have Good Friday services here at the Raleigh campuses for all of our campuses, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, and 3 o'clock. But I'm going to ask you to do something. I, I don't know that I've ever asked the congregation to do something this specific. You know, Good Friday represents a day of sacrifice. It's when Jesus laid down his life for us. And I thought, what if we all sacrifice something next Friday? Maybe you fast, maybe you can fast for the day. But what if we sacrifice something and we decided we were going to pray next week, next Friday? Okay? Could be at one of our services. It could be at home. Whatever it is. You set aside some time to pray for a couple of things. One, our 15 services spread out over three campuses. Let's pray that God shows up and just does things that just absolutely blows our mind. I've met so many people that are coming. I was at the rally point with the Band of Brothers concert, and a lady came up to me. She said, hey, I'm bringing this guy to church, and his eyes are like deer, you know, and they're like, I'll, I'll be there, I'll be there. And, yeah, man, I'm going to let you have it when you come. And yeah, that's okay, I'll take it, you know. But I know you got people planning on coming, so let's pray that God just shows up and does some incredibly amazing things. But this is the second thing I want you to pray for. Those of us in leadership here at Hope, we're right at the crossroads of having to make some decisions that aren't just going to impact us. They're going to impact hope for the next generation. They're going to impact our children. And so I just want you to pray. We'll say more about it later. I want you to just pray, God, give the leaders clarity and give us a clear vision of the next step that you want us to take as a congregation as we continue to reach the triangle and change the world. I'm going to ask you to do that, and, and I know that you will. Now, if you're here this weekend... Whether it's the first, you know, you don't like church, somebody just drug you here, or you're here every week, right? There's one thing, I can promise you this, there's one thing that you have in common with Jesus. Maybe you didn't know it, but there's at least one thing, and it's this. When Jesus was on this earth, he didn't care for religious professionals either, okay? I just want you to know that. And those of us who are religious professionals, we know how you feel about us. We've seen your face when we showed up at a party that you were invited to, and you were thinking, honey, who invited the preacher? What kind of party can this be? You know, we've, we've seen that. Those of us who do this for a living, we know why we get invited to weddings. It's not because you like us. You need someone to sign the marriage license, and you need someone to pray before the meal when you get to the reception. After that, it's like, how long is that guy going to hang around here so the party can finally break out? We understand, but this is what's interesting. When you discover the life of Jesus, you, you discover that when he was on this earth, he surrounded himself not with a bunch of theologians. He didn't surround himself with a bunch of uh, religious professionals. He surrounded himself with 12 friends. And having, having been in ministry for over 30 years and been around a lot of ministers, uh, a lot of theologians, a lot of religious professionals, I get that. In fact, I, I love to tell the story. Uh, I was in Virginia meeting with about a dozen pastors, and we were sitting in a circle, and we were each going around sharing what was going on in our lives, how was our ministry going, what could people pray for us about. And sitting next to me was an elderly gentleman. His name is Lester. He was like 75 years old. He spent most of his adult life as a missionary in Africa. He came back to the States. He couldn't afford to retire, having been a missionary all of his life. So he was pastoring a small church in Virginia, the little mountains of Virginia. And it was a struggle, and he was sharing how depressing it was, and it wasn't growing, it was shrinking, and all these things were going on. Well, another pastor spoke up and said, this is one of the great mysteries of life to me. I don't understand why God would bless Mike and his church, 
and not bless Lester when everybody knows that Lester's a lot more spiritual than Mike. And I'm like, I'm right here, you know? I mean, everybody knows that, but you don't have to just say it out loud, right? But thankfully, the story of Jesus isn't the story, uh, and the disciples, it's not the story of a theological think tank. It's a story of Jesus and friends. And this is a friendship that was cultivated over three years of ministry. And if, if you know the story, you know that after Jesus' death, 11 of those friends went on to change the world but as we're going to see over the next few minutes, it wasn't until after these friends had let Jesus down in every way humanly possible, especially when he needed him the most. But this is what's interesting, and this is what I want you to see. Even though Jesus was fully aware of the fact that they were going to disappoint him, they were going to let him down, he never wavered in his love for them. His love was absolutely unconditional. In fact, listen to this verse, John 13, 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, get this now, he loved them to the end. Now, we get that. I mean, we get that God, Jesus could love that way. After all, he's God. This is where it becomes a challenge. This is the problem. It's when God, or Jesus says to us who are followers of Jesus Christ, he says, I command you to love that way. And that's a little weird to us, but this is what he says in John 15, 12. My command is this, love each other just as I have loved you. And then he says it again in verse 17, in case you missed it. This is my command, love each other. And it just seems weird that Jesus would command us to love each other. You can't command somebody to, to love someone, right? Uh, I'll never forget one time I had a dream, and I was walking through the Cary Town Center. I can, I can still see where I was, and I was walking up one of those little ramps, and as I was walking up the ramp, I noticed Laura on the other side coming toward me with a really hunky guy, arm in arm. And so I crossed over, and I said, what are you doing? And she says, I don't love you anymore. I love this guy. I said, no, 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 we've been married. You have to love me. And I'm talking to her. I said, well, why don't you love me? And I was so frustrated. And she said, several reasons. You're losing your hair. Your wrinkles are getting deeper, and that pooch around your waist, you cannot lose. And she started to lift his shirt up to show me his abs, and I woke up. Okay? And I looked over at her, and she's just snoring away. I just wanted to punch her. You know what I'm saying? I didn't do that. I played like I was asleep and accidentally kicked her. Don't pretend you guys haven't done that, right? But what was so frustrating in my dream was no much how much I demanded her to love me, commanded her to love me, begged her to love me. I could not make her Love me. And, and as humans, we get that. I mean, most of us understand you can't make someone love you, and, and you can't be commanded on command to love someone in return, can you? But Jesus clearly states in verse 17, love each other. I command you to do that. Now, here's the part of the problem. It's our concept of love. I mean, unfortunately, because of shows like The Bachelor, right, we confuse love with romance, mood lighting, music, and flowers, and gifts, and helicopter rides to exotic locations. I mean, anybody can love in a situation like that. Anybody's heart would go pitter-patter in an environment like that. But that's not this kind of love. That's human love. That's infatuation. This word that John, that John uses here is the Greek word agape. And you know this, this is a love that begins in the mind. This is a love that's based on a decision. I'm going to put your needs above my own needs. In other words, to love the way that Jesus is commanding us to love, it's a decision, it's a choice we have control over. I can decide whether or not to love you this way. That's why Jesus could command it. But what's interesting, the verse that really caught my attention is verse 13. He says this, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, 
I realize this. You don't need to send me any emails. This, this, I know this relates specifically to Jesus laying down his life for those disciples, his friends. But, I mean, that's quite a statement. I mean, most of us, there aren't many people we would be willing to lay our lives down for, right? Maybe our spouses. Maybe our children. Maybe not. I'm, I've met some of your spouses and children, right? But Jesus says to these men, I love you so much that I am willing to die for you regardless of your behavior, regardless of what you give back to me, regardless of your actions. And that's important because the last night that Jesus spent on this earth, those last few hours, his disciples, as I want you to see, they did everything they possibly could to put that love to the test. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 22, we're going to spend the evening there, the weekend there. Luke chapter 22 is the record of Jesus' last few hours, that last evening before his crucifixion. Jesus is gathered with his disciples. They're in Jerusalem. They're there to celebrate Passover. Just so you know, back up a few days, this week started with incredible high hopes. I mean, this week, this, this was the week of the triumphal entry. We're talking about parades. We're talking about palm branches. We're talking about cloaks being laid in the ground. We're talking about people lining the streets saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. God, save us now, save us now. I mean, hope was at an all-time high when Jesus made his way on the back of that colt into Jerusalem. But by the time you get to this upper room, things are starting to come apart. Things are starting to unravel. This madness is setting in. In fact, let me just bring you up to speed. Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. Then they had dinner together. And then Jesus had a few moments to share some last-second intimate truths with them. It's, it's as if Jesus knew that the clock was ticking. That the window of opportunity was quickly closing. Whatever he had to share with them, he had to share with them quickly. And then when they wrapped up their time in the upper room, it tells us that Jesus made his way out to the Mount of Olives. Matthew tells us it was to the Garden of Gethsemane. We can pick up the story in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. It says this, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. So Jesus says, I just want you to pray. As I was asking you guys to do next Friday, Jesus says, I want you just to spend some time in prayer. But notice what he did. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And being in anguish, remember that word, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. That word anguish there, the Greek word, this is a word that was used in the first century uh, to refer to someone who was experiencing uncontrollable fear. That's what Jesus was experiencing, uncontrollable fear. And I get that. I mean, he's only 33. Nobody wants to die at 33. On top of that, he knew what the crucifixion was going to be like. He had seen them. He had witnessed them. He knew how gruesome they were. He knew the pain, the suffering, the abuse that he was going to experience over the next few hours. But that wasn't the worst part. Jesus also knew that while he was hanging out the cross, at some moment in time, he was going to become sin for us. That's how the Apostle Paul described it. In other words, at some point, God was going to take all the sin that would ever be committed in the past, all the sin that would ever be committed in the future, and he was going to pour it onto the shoulders of his son. He was going to become sin for us, and Jesus was going to experience the ramification and the weight of all that sin, all of the anger, all of the guilt, all of the hatred, all of the abuse. He was going to fill it all at one time. Even that wasn't the worst part. You know what the worst part was? He knew that when the Father poured out that sin on him, the father was going to turn his back and look away. 
And that's when Jesus was going to say, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus and the Father, they have only known this perfect, harmonious relationship. And Jesus was aware that in the next few hours, for the first time in his existence, that was going to be broken. And he's in anguish, right? And so he's asking the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, is there any other way? Is there any other option? Is there a plan B? And understand at this moment, more than ever, what does Jesus need? He just needs the support of his friends. Yet not even Peter. Remember Peter, the biggest fan, right? Not even Peter could stay awake long enough to pray. In fact, Matthew tells us that three times Jesus interrupted his prayers and he went out and checked on the disciples. And each time he came out to check on them, they were sleeping. And so finally the third time he says, just get your rest. And he went back into the garden, and this is what Jesus realized. What he was about to endure and what he was about to go through, he was going to endure and he was going to go through alone. The madness only ratchets up when you think about the betrayal of Judas. You go back to that evening while they were sharing the meal. It says in John chapter 13, verse 2, the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. You drop down to verse 27 of John 13, and it says that sometime during the meal, Jesus leaned over and whispered in the ear of Judas, Hey, Judas, I know what you're up to. What you're about to do, do quickly. Let's get it over with. And Judas sneaks away from the table, and he slithers out into the night to put his plan of betrayal into motion. And sure enough, while Jesus is still praying in the garden, Luke 22, verse 47, it says, A crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. One of the twelve. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked, Judas, are you, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, let me put this in perspective for you. Understand, Judas, he's been a friend. He has lived and followed Jesus for three years. He was right there when Jesus forgave the woman who was caught in adultery. He was in the boat when Jesus walked on the water. He was right there cheering along everyone else when Jesus healed the man who was born blind. He was right there when Jesus fed the 5,000. In fact, he helped collect the food that was left over. He had slept so closely to Jesus, he could hear him snore. He had eaten with him. There were times when Judas served Jesus, and we know there were times when Jesus, Jesus served Judas because just a few hours earlier, he'd even washed his feet. And at that last supper in the upper room, he was given one last chance to change his mind, but instead he said no, he rejected the offer. He went out, he put the plan of betrayal into motion. And you know he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Now I'm going to be honest with you. Of all the things in the Bible, Judas will always be one of the biggest mysteries to me. When I get to heaven, some of the most intense questions I'm going to have is about this whole Judas thing, right? But you know what? We're so hard on Judas, but I want you to know something. We should be hard on him. In a lot of ways, he's really not a lot different than people who come to church every weekend. I mean, Judas, when you think about it, he's a classic example of someone who can hear it all, love it all, but at the end of the day, reject it all. People who come and listen and never have any life change whatsoever, that was Judas. And so he goes down in history as the classic example of a traitor. In fact, he's such a detestable individual, no parent in their right mind would name their son Judas. We even use that name Judas, the synonym for someone who betrays us. He's a Judas. It's the ultimate insult right? But now Jesus has been betrayed by a friend. And he's arrested in the garden and he's, he's led away. 
And now the story that maybe we're the most familiar with, the vignette, it's Peter, you know? And if, you, if you've heard the story or read it, you know that it began, you know, with Peter making a bold statement earlier in Luke 22. Look at verse 33. Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered in verse 34, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Now, it's easy to cluck our tongue and just come down really hard on Peter, but before we do that, you know what, this is a great reminder. This is a great reminder that we are all human. I mean, let's face it. When it comes to our relationship with Jesus, when it comes to our commitment to Jesus, there are days when we're on and there are days when we're off. There are days when we're up and there are days when we're down. There are days when we're obedient and then there are days when we're rebellious, right? But here's the thing. No matter how committed we feel that we are to Jesus Christ, I'm promising you we're going to fail. We're going to have times when we have colossal failures. In fact, maybe you're here this weekend and, 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 you're, and you're surrounded by all of these church people. I mean, and, and, and maybe, maybe your perspective of these guys is, these are saints around me. I mean, these are godly, perfect people. And because of that, I mean, you feel awkward. In fact, you, you feel as uncomfortable as, as President Obama on Fox News. You know what I'm saying? I mean, right now you feel about as uncomfortable as Nicki Minaj in a convent, you know, or Justin Bieber at a real man concert, you know, what I'm, or a conference, something like that. You just feel out of place. You say, I don't deserve to be here. I want you to know something. Some of the people you're sitting around, they're 20 times worse than you are. Some of the people you're sitting around right now at all of our campuses, they have blown it big time. And if they haven't blown it, I'll make you a prediction. They will blow it. And if you're sitting here this weekend and you think, I won't blow it, let me remind you of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. See, this isn't unique to Peter. But we know this story. <laughs> And we know that Peter's going down, and, he, and, and he's, he, he's going to go down hard. And we've all heard the story, we've read the story about the denial the three times, and we think, how in the world could he do this, right? Well, you got to understand, he didn't just suddenly become a bad person. He didn't just automatically transform into a Judas. In fact, it was really a process. You can see the process of erosion right in, right in the story. In fact, step one, look at verse 54. Peter followed at a distance. Well, why is he following at a distance, right? Why wasn't he right there defending Jesus? Why wasn't he showing his support? He said, I'll go to prison, even die for you. Why wasn't he right there? You can see the second step in verse 55. But when they, referring to the accusers, had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. I'm like, are you kidding me? What is he doing hanging out with those who arrested Jesus? Sitting around the bonfire, making s'mores. I mean, Peter, what are you thinking? But you can see the third step, and by verse 56, he becomes a part of the discussion. Now, just to understand, for Peter, those were the steps down. That was the process. But what I want you to understand is, is when we fail, because we will fail, we'll all go through a similar process. I mean, it doesn't just happen suddenly. You don't just one day get up and murder someone. You don't one day just get up and, and have an affair with someone. You don't just one day go out and rob a bank. You don't do it. There's a process. It, go, it, it happens over a period of time. We compromise. We justify. We rationalize. We walk just as closely to the edge as we can. And then one day we fail. And like Peter, we wonder, how in the world did I ever get here? Well, it's a process, right? Well, back to Peter. He, he becomes a part of this group discussion and before long, they notice him. In fact, a servant girl said, hey, 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 I recognize you. 
You're one of them. And he says it for the very first time. Look in verse 57. I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him once, right? By the way, let me just say this. In every case of erosion, the first step is the most dangerous. It's the most disastrous because it begins the process. I'll give you an example, a very recent example. Uh, I told you Lars got me on this gluten-free diet with her and uh, trying to get me back to my original birth weight. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting there, but right? No pasta, no rice, no sweets, no red meat, no cheese, no fun. In fact, the other night I was so excited. The doorbell rang, pizza delivery guy. I was so jacked up, Lars threw the pizza away, we ate the cardboard. I mean, that's, that's just kind of the diet we're having right now. Well, last weekend she was out of town. Okay. That Friday night, I went to Rally Point for the Band of Brothers concert, right? Fundraiser for Hope for Haiti. Fried fish and chips. Mmm, ketchup. Good. Got up Friday morning, ate some muffins. Gluten, no, all kind of gluten, extra gluten, you know? <laughs> Call the kids, because I hate it when Laura's gone. Want to go to lunch? Yeah. Where do you want to go? Chili's. Nothing good can happen at Chili's, but that's where I went. Oh, Going down now, because on the way to the church office to, to, to work on Saturday afternoon, I decided I had to get gas, and so I went in the gas station. I got a Coke. I can't remember the last time. I, I got a Coke, Raisinets, peanut M&Ms, and an Almond Joy. <laughs> Brought them to my office, turned on the basketball game, ate them all. And then before the 415 service, I see Gary Vett, our pastor of adult education. I, he says, how you feel? I said, I don't know, man. I'm all jumpy and edgy. I don't know what's wrong with me, you know? Got out of church Saturday night, went right through the McDonald's drive-thru. Big Mac combo, supersized with an apple pie. <laughs> Sunday went home, got a pizza, ate the whole thing, watching Carolina lose in the championship game, right? You know where it all started? Band of Brothers concert. It's all their fault. That first start, that first step, you know, that's where I blew it. That's where I lost it. But here's the thing. With all of us, once you start the process... It never gets better. It always gets worse. You see, Peter took the first step. He started the process. Momentum just took over. And once he said the very first time, I don't know him, well, that made the second one really easier. easier, easier. And then the sec somebody comes by and they recognize him. And they recognize his accent, that he's from Galilee. Peter can't hide it. And, and they accuse Peter. And Mark says here at this point, that Peter cursed, he swore. Blankety, blank, blank, blank. I said, I don't blankety, blank, blank know him. And guess what? The questioning stopped. You know why? I think they thought, wow, we've heard Jesus talk. Somebody talks like that, not a follower of Jesus. No. And they let him go. And the rooster crowed. And Luke tells us that Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. Doesn't say a word. Doesn't need to. Just looks. And my guess, it just felt like a dagger going into Peter's heart. And then we can all identify with the words of verse 62. Peter went out and wept bitterly. What brought the tears? Two words in verse 62. Peter remembered. You remember what Jesus has said? Can you imagine if this were your life? This all took place in the span of of just a few hours, a few hours. And what without a doubt was the darkest night in the history of the world. But what I want you to see is there's a lesson in each one of these scenes and it's a lesson 
for us. And each one of these lessons on the surface seems depressing, but if you dig a little deeper, you find out there's really a silver lining. We get the first lesson from the very first scene. Remember the disciples, they kept falling asleep and Jesus ended up praying alone. Here's the lesson. Everyone will endure a Gethsemane alone. Everyone. I mean, have you ever, have you ever prayed with something with an intensity? I mean, you're on your knees, your, your, your face is buried in the ground. And with just every bit of energy you have, you know, you got, God, heal my child. God, in this hardship, God, heal me, whatever it is, right? And you would love nothing more than for someone to be able to be there to just help carry that for you, to go through this struggle with you. But the reality is you're going to go through that alone. I know of a family right now. I ran into them at a restaurant this week's. Several weeks ago, they found out their son was using drugs. He wouldn't quit. They had to ask him to leave. He's prodigal. He's AWOL. And every morning, they get up and wonder where he is. And every night, they go to bed worrying about where he is. And you can love on them, and you can encourage them, and you can pray for them. But I'm going to tell you something. As a parent, I know that's a Gethsemane you go through alone because nobody ever gets it except the parent. There's another family in our church. They... 17-year-old daughter, full of life, found out just last week that she has a brain tumor right in the middle of her brain. And we can love on them, and we can pray for them, and we can encourage them. But you know what? You know what it's like to be a parent. That's a Gethsemane you're going to go through all alone. I have a friend whose life is unraveling. He's losing it all. I can love on him and care for him, but he's going to go through it alone. I'm in a Gethsemane right now. And you can pray for me and care for me and send me emails and encouragement. But you know what? At the end of the day, I know this is one I'm just going to go through alone. Now, I mean, I'll tell you, you may not have many Gethsemane experiences, but you will have at least one. It might be an illness. It might be a career. It might be a relationship. It might be finances. And it will be a lonely time. But it will be a necessary time. Now, here's the silver lining. It's in our Gethsemane experiences that we learn to submit to God and his plan for our lives. You see, we got these big plans. We got all thought through how it's going to be, when we're going to get married, or what our kids are going to be like, and where we're going to live. And then God says, nope, let's go to the garden. And it's there that you learn to pray, okay, Jesus, okay, God, (laughs) I get it now. It's not my will. It's not my desire. It's not my plan. It's yours. But you'll never learn how to handle Gethsemane until you can pray the very same prayer that Jesus prayed. I was talking to Debbie Dodson. She's on staff. In fact, she works right outside my office, about 10 steps. I'll never forget the Saturday morning a few years ago when my cell phone rang and I received word when her husband, who was one of our elders, one of the godliest men I've ever met in my life, had taken a gun and taken his life on a Saturday morning. Left Debbie, three boys. And so we were talking about this in, in my office this week, about my message, and she said, you know, Mike, she said, uh, that's where you really learn to trust God. Up till your Gethsemane, it's all theory. It's all theory. You see, some of you are there right now. And your loneliness is almost unbearable. Let me just tell you, Jesus understands. He's been there. 
He's been there. Here's the second lesson. We get it from Judas. Every one of us will experience betrayal. Every one of us. It may be a close friend, a co-worker, a business partner, a spouse, a child, a parent. Maybe a relationship you thought was going to last forever. You will experience betrayal. You can count on it. But here's the silver lining. It's in our betrayal that we learn reality. See, one of the greatest lessons we learn on our Christian journey is this. It's the reality that other people will fail us, but God will never fail us. He is a friend who sticks closer than any brother or spouse. I mean, he's like super glue, and as our trust in him grows, believe it or not, we become better and we become stronger for the experience. We'll all experience betrayal, but it's there we learn that God never fails us. In fact, it's there we learn he's the only one at the end of the day we can really, really count on. And here's the third one. We get it from Peter. We will all fail. In some way, we're all going to fail. And I can tell you from experience, when you fail, it's humiliating. Uh, it's heartbreaking. You feel like the scum of the earth. You, you have to look into the face of the person that you let down, and it breaks you and crushes you. <clears throat> and often, nothing but time will bring healing. But we're all fell. Gethsemane teaches us submission. Betrayal teaches us reality. <laughs> Failure teaches us humility. It keeps us humble. A.W. Tozer said this, It's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Peter was hurt deeply, you know. You know what I think? I don't think Peter ever made a sweeping promise again. Ever. I think that that glance from Jesus leveled him you know it's interesting when you when you study the last few hours in the life of Jesus you understand how the writer of Hebrews could say we have a savior who understands our weaknesses you know and because he understands our weaknesses uh, there is every disappointment that we experience in life he can identify with you know you ever felt like you needed to bargain with God for a way out of your situation Jesus gets that. He prayed like that. Have you been betrayed by someone you trusted? He understands that. Someone failed you? Not a pain in your life he doesn't understand. You know, it was night when all of this transpired, and it was, it was crazy night. It was a mad night. It was the original March Madness. And in the next few hours, he's going to be beaten within an inch of his life, and he's going to be nailed to a cross, but here's the good news. The story doesn't end there because three days later, it was a brand new day. Everything changed, but not yet. Mm -mm. That's next week. But first, there's the cross. See, that's what he did for us. And you cannot celebrate the beauty of resurrection and life until you understand the darkness of the cross. Let's pray together. Father, it's so easy for us to forget. It's so easy for us to get forget that a, a cross was a it was an emblem of murder. It was the death penalty. 
Now we put gold on them and wear them around our necks or we, wear, we put them on the front of our Bible. And... But Father, for you it represented the greatest gift you gave us, the death of your son to pay for our sins. And Father, the, the fact that the writer of Hebrews says that everything that Jesus went through, he went through so he could identify with us. And Father, I pray right now for those who are in a Gethsemane experience and they're there alone. Father, I know the hardest prayer to pray is, Father, not my will, but your will. Whatever that means, that you be glorified. Father, I pray for those right now who are in the middle of betrayal, wives and husbands and children, co-workers. And the reminder that when it's all said and done at the end of the day, the only one we really can trust and rely on is you. And Father, I pray for those even sitting here this weekend that have failed and they're living in the backwash of that failure and they're living in the guilt of that failure. Father, help them understand it's under the blood. It's under the blood. And Father, that you forgive them if they'll confess it and bring it to you. And Father, it will be one of the things that will teach them the humility of walking with you daily. We thank you for your gift. We cannot express our gratitude enough. In your name we pray.